So hi everyone, uh, today I, with me I have Dr. Judith Landsberg to give us a bit more insight into weather, climate and the energy industry. She'll be talking to us a bit more about different aspects on this interconnecting industry and her kind of experiences and what she kind of does at the moment. I could give Judith a bit more of an elaborate background but it probably won't do her justice. So if Judith, if you would like to introduce yourself a bit more, that would be great. So I have had a somewhat broad career. The, uh, that's probably a tactful way of putting it. I've worked in a lot of different industries and have gravitated towards sustainability and specifically energy because it is such an interesting industry with a lot of opportunity for impact. So it is at the intersection of uh, technology and science, economics, uh, policy, behavior. It really, the problems are complex and require systems thinking. So that's, that's how I ended up in energy, and I keep coming back to it. I have a PhD in nuclear physics, which is where I started, and immediately left science to work as a management consultant, mostly because I, I didn't want to work in pure science. I, I, I you know, love science. If I still use it um, every day, but I wanted to um, – I was interested in, in the applications in the real world, for want of a better way of describing it. The day-to-day, how it impacts people's decisions, how it impacts economies, that sort of thing. So I worked as a management consultant for four years. And I have to say that that experience from a business point of view has been really useful, being able to understand and talk to business people, understand the drivers. And then I uh, moved to Bermuda uh, with my, or who eventually became my husband, and worked as a high school teacher for a while. It was, it was just something I had always wanted to do. But again, uh, I find that, that the skills I learned, so I taught high school maths and physics, and the skills that I learned teaching are also skills that I use every day. You know, how to create a narrative, how to connect with people where they are. So when I'm talking to people about career pathways, I will always say, go do what you want to do, but figure out what skills you're learning. I left teaching uh, and... Mostly because of what I was very much drawn by my, my dad's an environmental scientist. So sustainability and the environment is something that I've always, you know, felt a pull towards. So I ran a sustainability charity in Bermuda for a number of years, which I think we're going to talk about a little bit, which included uh, the focus of the charity was, was uh, the tagline was changing the mindset, but we worked mostly in uh, changing behavior and also uh, led the work of other environmental organizations in Bermuda on the energy system because because that was uh, was where you know, changing behavior really makes a difference to uh, the impact we have on the planet. So um, after that, we moved back to Australia. So I was in Bermuda for nearly 20 years. I moved back to Australia seven years ago looking for opportunities here and as I'm sure will be familiar to some of you that took a while because Australians tend to you know they're used to thinking about well experience that happens in Australia so um, I did some more work in the in the education sector but then worked at the city of Melbourne as uh, the team leader for the low carbon future team and the main pieces of the main projects that we were working on were the uh, zero net emissions strategy for the city of Melbourne and the Melbourne Renewable Energy Project. So my experience in Bermuda understanding energy systems was uh, very useful, uh, although on a very different scale. One of the advantages of Bermuda is that, you know, there's a whole system. You can study the entire system (laughs) 
at once. It's, it's really not very complicated. You've got 30,000 homes, you've got one power station, you know, you've got sort of four solar installers. So I, and so you can study the whole system. I forgot to mention that while I lived in Bermuda, I also did a master's in um, environmental leadership at Duke University. Uh, and what I wanted there was that I wanted to fill in some of the gaps in my knowledge. So specifically things like environmental economics, policy analysis, a bit of uh, environmental law, uh, formal decision-making. So, so that was, that was actually another really useful thing to think about. People quite often will say to me, why did I go back and do a master's after I'd done a PhD? But I think that's fundamentally not understanding, you know, kind of how you build an education portfolio. So I did it because very different skills. So those were very useful as well in the Melbourne Renewable Energy Project. And the goal of that one was to bring together a group of partners across the city of Melbourne to fund uh, new renewable energy. So it was an um, 80 gigawatt wind farm in Western Victoria. That, was, um, that position was always a temporary position. And so, because I was backfilling for someone who was on leave for a year. Uh, but then from there, I um, to work at the Bureau of Meteorology, which is where I'm working now. And I work on the Electricity Sector Climate Information Project, which is about providing long-term climate, f- climate information, which can be used to assess the risk of climate change to parts of the electricity system. I also work on another project, which is uh, at the Bureau, which is about extreme and compound weather events and how that has impacts on systems, including electricity. So there you go, Brian. That's a quick walkthrough. Thanks. I think my professional career. (laughs) (laughs) There's some interesting stuff there. It's nice to hear that you did a PhD in nuclear science, switched to managed consulting, then went to high school teacher, and then kind of circled back to energy in the end, which is which is a nice kind of circular kind of career pathway, I guess. Mm. I think yeah. There's probably some debate to see whether or not management consultant is probably an easier position to manage people rather than high school teaching, which would have been a challenge in itself. But yeah, that's impressive. So I think, yeah, that's a good point to lead on. So you mentioned you were teaching in Bermuda, and during that time, you helped to introduce a kind of environmental education program into the the Bermuda schools. We all know that education is super important in helping to improve our development of sustainability and renewable energy. So how did you feel like the outcome of that program was in trying to deliver its goals? And what kind of real-time benefits did you see? Because I guess you were kind of, that would have been for like the younger generations, which really will be the ones to end up solving the problems that we're facing now. Well, um, yes, it was, it was um, aimed at primary school students. So we were applying a program call, called um, Eco Schools, which is designed by, um, it's accredited by the UN, it's designed by the Foundation for Environmental Education. So Eco Schools, uh, what they suggest you do is you identify, I think it was seven different what they call pathways. So, you know, they could, and the schools could then choose what they work on. So it can be waste, it can be uh, sustainable food uh, and energy uh, was one of the pathways. And, but was a very popular one in Bermuda, partly because as an island uh, with the energy system, energy supplied entirely by a diesel fuel powered generator. At 97%. We have about 1% uh, rooftop solar and about 2 or 3%, depending on the day, of uh, municipal waste. So a, um, 
um, you know, incinerator. But almost all fossil fuel uh, generated, which is which is shipped in to Bermuda. So the Bermuda in Australia, the cost of electricity is around thirty cents a kilowatt hour, plus or minus. In Bermuda, it's closer to sixty, which means meant that it was it's it's much more uh, top of mind for both regular households and any institution in Bermuda because it represents an enormous part of their daily expenditure. So the school program, they were, you know, they were offered a number of different uh, pathways. Then we worked with them to design the program. So uh, waste was also a popular one. And I think the, uh, I think what's really useful is to think that these concepts are not very difficult. (laughs) They're really not. They're not really. No. And we tend to make them really complicated. And I think it's really true in the climate space as well. But conceptually, the idea of waste, whether it's wasting electricity, wasting water, wasting food, you know, kids understand that. And um, and so there's some really easy uh, tools and making them responsible. So we had programs with things like, I don't know if and if you remember primary school or no primary age kids, but they have things like the homework monitor who collects books if they still have books, some of them. But they made an energy monitor who would turn out the lights at the end of every day. But what what we were really teaching them was the importance of science and of measuring, measuring impact. So they would do an audit at the beginning. You know, they looked at the school's electricity bills. They looked at how uh, we, we got energy monitors on some of the classroom feeds so that they could see how much electricity the classrooms were using or some of their major appliances, for example, you know, the heating. And then they then they went and, and designed education programs and then they measured it again. So that impact, I think, is something that is really motivating. It's I hear it at every level, whether it's whether it's, you know, I've been working with a local council. I have another project that I can't remember if it's on my profile or, and I certainly didn't mention it, which is I also did a small social enterprise, which is looking at uh, establishing community batteries. It's a very different scale from the, from the Bureau one, but we're working with a local council. And what they always ask is what's measurable? What can we measure? You know, can we measure our reduced? And, and in the environmental space, you can't measure everything. And there's a lot of uncertainty. But I think the value of measuring is demonstrating people that individuals can have an impact. Um, and I just want to take uh, to, to disagree, actually, with one of the things you just said, Brian, which is that, it's, that, that you know, we do. People often say that, that, prior, that school kids, are the, uh, it's really important to engage them because they, they're the ones who come up with solutions. And I'm sure you didn't mean it simplistically. But, um, and I think it, it is important to engage them and they're very open to this. Uh, but as you certainly know, you know, climate change is something that has to be solved a little more urgently than those kids' careers. But the advantage of talking to kids is that they engage their parents you know, in a very non-judgmental way. They engage their parents. They engage the school community. They're always very excited about standing outside with, with uh, posters that say, this is turn your lights off a week or something. <laughs> so, that is uh, true. Yeah, that is a good point to make. I guess, yeah, if we can even convince kids a little bit, they kind of pass it on to their parents. But they're like, let's get involved in this activity that we're kind of running in at school and parents are likely to follow. They do. They're terrific amplifiers. Yeah, yeah, that's great to hear. Yeah, I guess kind of from a like from a perspective in Bermuda, since you mentioned that you can, it's much easier to view the whole network because it is comparably smaller to Melbourne at least, did you find that these programs 
could have like a greater outreach and have a bigger impact than what they could potentially do in Melbourne? The schools program specifically? Mm. Yes, I think it is easier because if you think of it as a sort of a herd immunity problem, almost, you know, in Bermuda, Bermuda has 36 schools. So we, um, our program was in 20 of the schools. I'm not sure where it's up to now. It's certainly still going quite well. And so you can get to a point where you have a critical mass uh, and a consistent message. So that is certainly easier. I know from other education activities in the city of Melbourne that it's sometimes harder to measure your impact. But uh, so, yeah, that's an interesting point is, you know, the message can, in a small community. However, I do think I'm working in the city of Melbourne. One of the things that was interesting for me is about units, the right scale for change. Mm. You know, I think a city is, is a great scale for change because although there's huge differences, the, um, you know, we experience roughly the same weather. You know, mm. we experience, uh, we all experience the same train system, uh, the same road system. So us will know people, you know, in different parts of the city. Politically, again, large differences, but not compared with Australia as a whole. So I think, you know, cities and states are a great unit for change um, because mm. of that, because of that shared experience. Okay, yeah, that's a good point to make. So I guess leading on from your work in Bermuda, you worked in other renewable energy projects in Bermuda as well. And then when you moved back to Melbourne, you helped, as you mentioned, the City of Melbourne project in moving towards more renewable energy. What kind of differences and challenges did you find in implementing renewable energy projects in both Bermuda and in Melbourne? And kind of what challenges did you find similar? Because I guess both places would have ideally the same objectives to move to more renewable energy and reduce reliance on fossil fuels. But I guess some differences in kind of like the capacity and the size of the distribution networks as well as the supplies is is a bit more prominent? They don't necessarily have the same goal. And again, (laughs) this actually from an Australian point of view, this, you know, resonates at a Commonwealth level, which is the Bermuda government did not have a goal of increasing renewable energy. Um, And we don't have that goal at a federal level here either. And what that means is that the drive uh, both in Australia and in Bermuda is economic. So we're lucky in Victoria, we have a very strong policy support, but the, and we're also very lucky from a, you know, the world's point of view that in fact, renewable energy is becoming a lot cheaper and it is the, it is a good economic choice. But I think that's where my experience in business was very useful. And I think the other thing I would say to science students and to myself as a science student is that most decisions in the world are not made, not rational. They have elements of it. They're certainly not entirely rational. You know, we like to say the decisions are made on economics, you know, which they are, or on a financial plan, which they also are. But there's a huge amount of judgment that goes into it. You know, you have to do risk assessments. You have to figure out what you agree on about what the future looks like. You know, if you look at climate risk projections, the IPCC has described, I think it's altogether seven different possible pathways for greenhouse gas emissions. We usually use three or four of them. And those entirely depend on non-science stuff. You know, how, what do we think about how uh, international policy is going to change? What is what behavior is going to change? What technology is going to change? What's the impact of economics or a pandemic? And so I think if moving into that space, what I've found really, really important is the, the importance of narrative. So talking about either just plain sustainability in schools, whether it's waste or, or water, or even if you're selling a major project, the importance of narrative, how this connects with uh, meaning 
how this connects with image. <laughs> so to give you an example, when we were doing the Melbourne Renewable Energy Project, it was a really hard project. It was the first project in the world that was a large-scale partnership power purchase agreement worth millions of dollars, both in uh, the amount and uh, in potential savings, but in the cost of the wind farm itself up front, capital costs. But uh, for most of the partners who signed on, it was 14 different partners, organizations, everything from uh, Zoos Victoria to the banks and other universities and some businesses. Mostly they were doing it because they were telling a story. You know, they were telling a story to their clients or to their membership base about how committed they were to this. And so some of the stories you have about the project is just, you know, very getting down to the wire, getting down to a point where contracts had to be signed by five o'clock that day and we didn't have two of the partners signing it. And so it, it comes down to going to them and telling a story about why it's important. Why do you prioritize this signature over other signatures? And, and in fact, what you started with was, you know, do they have the same goals? Goals are a story too. So I think working in any sector, but particularly in a sector which has a long-term trajectory it's really different from solving a technical problem. You know, the technical problems are important, but linking that to, to a narrative that, that is coherent, that makes sense to your, you know, to your proponent or whoever you're working with is also really important. Okay, that's quite interesting to hear. I guess in terms of creating like this narrative to help the sustainability and renewable energy progression and development, do you kind of feel like, the better narrative comes from people that have greater passions or what kind of skills do you reckon especially in students kind of help to to kind of get those needed projects across but also into the minds of people who actually sign off on those projects and kind of approve them I think it comes back to where I started which is what interests me about energy is it is that combination of economics population you know behavior policy technology science so I think uh, all of those skills are needed, you know, so the science has to be really good and not everybody is going to be comfortable. In fact, I work with a lot of climate scientists where I say to them, uh, tell a story and they're like, but, I, but I'm just going to give you the data and the data is important. You know, you have to have the rigorous science underpinning it. So I absolutely don't want to dismiss that or say that people have to move away from it. But I think Another example is that there's a recent paper in Nature in February talking about climate change as a service or climate information as a service. And it's uh, um, one of the things that they talk about is uh, being careful not to oversell the story and that when you're looking at uh, taking global climate change models and then downscaling them to give Australian information because the global climate models have a resolution of about 200 uh, kilometers so it's hard to tell you what's going to happen at your power station or your solar farm and there's there was a call for more science and it's like that that's true it's needed we need to communicate where the uncertainty is but where the narrative comes in is yeah that's fine but you know the investors want the answer this year <laughs> um, and the so you have to find a way to connect those two so an understanding, uh, I'll give you another example, which is that we're developing climate change projections for things like heat. And heat is a huge risk for the electricity sector. It affects every single part of the system, including 
uh, coal-fired power stations because they can't cool themselves if the water is too warm. You know, the power lines have to reduce the power flow if it gets too hot. Uh, you know, the demand goes up when it gets warm. Solar farms and wind farms shut down after a certain temperature. And most people are surprised when you hear about wind farms, but it's like, yeah, the engineering components just heat up and, you know, the hubs stop turning. So uh, heat is a massive risk for the electricity sector. You know, the story comes in because projections are uncertain. So they're very worried about you have to look at uh, an ensemble of projections. You have to look from lots of climate models. You have to look at lots of representative concentration pathways, the greenhouse gas pathways. And all of that is true. But the electricity sector comes from an engineering point of view, which is just give me the under over. (laughs) You know, it like, is it going to be twice as bad? And if it's not, my engineering specs will take care of it. So, you know, it's, it's connecting those stories together is where my career sits, you know, so being able to understand the science and the climatology and what an ensemble means and what a probability density envelope looks like, you know, and, but being able to connect with how a business decisions made really, you know, if, if you tell me that heat, that a really hot day in the future is going to reduce the, the, Uh, carrying capacity of the network by 5%. So that's actually significant, but it's less than the uncertainty from demographics, for example. Mm. I think that's a great segue, because yeah, you you recently had a paper published on looking at the effect of heat on renewable energy infrastructures like solar and wind farm. And I guess in your role and your work at Bureau of Meteorology, how is that kind of changing the work that the Bureau of Meteorology does? Because I guess most people kind of think what BOM does is give us a weather forecast, right? That's weather for the next seven days. But we don't realize that there is actually a lot of other work behind the scenes that help to build new infrastructure for cities and for communities. So kind of circling back onto the actual question. So how is the projections of how hot particular locations going to be actually affecting industry, like private and public planning of new solar and wind farms? Yeah, it's huge, actually, Brian. And, and it, you know, I referred to a paper earlier, which is generated by this conversation, by this debate. There is, in 2016, Global Banking started a call for including climate risk in financial decisions. So it's the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure. In 2018, the Australian uh, Centre for Policy Development did some work requiring that Australian businesses take or recommending that Australian boards are responsible for climate risk because it's a foreseeable risk. And that resulted in decisions by the Australian financial industry to require climate projections. And, and you know, finance finances all electricity infrastructure. So the momentum, so I'm sure a lot of you have heard about the momentum in, in the investment industry to require, you know, zero net emissions plans or uh, renewable energy and so forth. And this is actually separate from that. This is a risk question. And so the requirement to assess climate risk impact, physical risk on infrastructure has been snowballing. And there are enormous pressure on the Bureau and other uh, sources of climate information like CSIRO, UTS does a lot of work, UNSW. Climate Center is also excellent, but they uh, for climate projections as a service, like a weather service. And the science, climate science is ferociously complicated, not, you know, not what I study. But if you think about you're trying to model every layer of the atmosphere 
all of the chemistry, so all of the chemical relationships, all of the physical relationships, the fluid dynamics, the, radi the radiative forcing of the molecular mix in the atmosphere, uh, the land-water uh, interface, and you're, it, it's an inherently chaotic system. You know, it's an, it, is a, it is the original chaotic system. And you're doing this in, over the entire planet at you know, 200 kilometer, roughly 150, some of them are more resolution in uh, 30 minute time steps for the next hundred years, <laughs> solving all of those at every boundary, right? So this is like, it's, it's astonishingly complicated and they run out mm. of, of computing power on our, on our supercomputers all the time. So, uh, so the banks and the electricity sector coming to them and saying, can you just give us a better climate projection? <laughs> it's, it's kind of creating a problem, but, and what is, but it's needed. So, as I said, the, the, my career sits in that intersection, as, as we sometimes call it climate translator, you know, but it, it, is, it is understanding uh, how much of the science you can use at the moment, where it's going, and what is the intersection with decisions that are being made. So, another one example is, yeah, we do provide uh, weather services. And, the, the, you know, the, the weather forecasts are getting better at the rate of about one day every 10 years, just because the modeling is getting better. It's not connected to, to the climate models yet. So if I gave you a climate, a time series of a climate projection for weather, they use history to train them to make sure that they actually give a realistic projection, but they don't match. So for example, they wouldn't necessarily, they wouldn't give you last year's fires. They wouldn't give you, you know, specifically, they would give you a weather history where fires are likely. So there's a lot of work that still needs doing, but it's happening really fast. And, and I think that the amount of interest in, in, because weather is the fuel for, the electric, for a lot of the electricity system and is increasingly the fuel for the electricity system, those things are you know, really tightly tied together. Is that kind of what you were thinking, Brian? Or did yeah. You, yeah. No, I think, yeah. I, I was also kind of thinking, I think you described climate science and atmospheric science in a great way. It sounded very intricate and very complex, but I think... Oh, we probably it's, have it's, some of your members who know more about it than me, but so hopefully it was, uh, made some sense. <laughs> but it's a, it's a great description. I think as students, we always look for challenges, especially scientists and engineers, looking for new challenges and problems to solve. And the complexity and intricacy of all you just... All, all of what you just described sounds like an amazing challenge for students to take up on as they finish their studies and actually really apply what they're learning. And I think that's like, it's a great area that is developing, super interesting, especially seeing how it's really impacting our renewable energy infrastructures and how we're continuing to develop those particular infrastructures and making sure that they last and do what they need to do for like society's future. Um, let me just add to that, actually, Brian, you know, I, um, thinking about it from the point of view of students is certainly, you know, it needs real excellence in maths and physics and, and mm -hmm. chemistry to get those things right. But if you think about the entire communications pathway, you know, through to the, then the kinds of skills that are needed, as I said, certainly there's, there's very pure maths and science skills at one end, but then communicating that, you know, how do you actually, there's a lot of machine learning in weather forecasting and in climate change. And so, you know, which is a, which is a, a different way of thinking about it. And there's also uh, the modeling of the, the intersection of the weather and climate and the physical infrastructure. So not just engineering, but also, you know, figuring out just which parts of the models matter. 
you might think about it in terms of hierarchy in a business, you know, how do you communicate this to senior executives who some of whom come from a law and finance background? And, uh, and then there's risk management, which is a really different skill, actually. Uh, so, you know, as I said, that there's, there's, I think this sector calls for all skills. And it's people, uh, you know, every, every discipline has something to offer it as well. I think, yeah, that's a great point to make because I think sometimes people think that trying to find or trying to build renewable energy is highly up to the engineers to try and solve that problem. But you're kind of really highlighting that this kind of emerging interconnection between weather, climate and energy is actually now dependent on the growth from a lot of other disciplines getting involved as well, just to be able to really find a whole body solution to everything, like to this particular problem. And I think that's, yeah, that's a great to hear. I think for students, that's good to hear as well. They don't have to think, well, I'm not an engineer. I can't really contribute to solving this issue anymore. Thank you for sharing that. That's great insight into this particular industry. So moving on to that connection. So in your position at the Bureau of Meteorology and as a project coordinator for Energy Sector Climate Information Project, how are you seeing the forecasting climate and energy slowly becoming more interconnected and developing further and taking kind of different backgrounds of study and kind of incorporating all together, kind of a little bit more on what you've already kind of elaborated on? Yeah, sure. Um, I think a good illustration of this is to take the project that I'm working on. So the project was divided into three different streams, three different work streams initially. Uh, one was to do the modelling. So just to produce better climate information for the electricity sector. And so examples of that was that a lot of the climate modeling, the downscaling that I mentioned earlier in Australia has been funded by the states. And so it doesn't, it's not continuous. So producing down um, climate modeling, which is consistent across the national electricity market was one thing that was needed. 30 minute interval data is, is needed because of modeling pricing. But not just pricing, actually, uh, but also, you know, solar in, in particular, solar and wind. So, so a lot of what we did was actually just producing better climate information. Not better, but more tailored climate information that met the needs of the sector. The second work stream was looking at extreme and compound events, uh, which is a different branch of climatology. So the electricity sector said to us, yeah, we're worried about climate trends, although we think it's just a trend, as I said, like uh, demographics. Or, but we're really worried about the fact that extreme and compound events are likely to be more severe and more frequent, which they are. <laughs> and because uh, the interesting thing is from a business point of view, they don't model those. Those are considered to be outside the reliability requirement of the electricity network because they don't have probability information associated with them. You can't put probability, I mean, we do roughly, we call it a one in a hundred year flood, you know, but what's the probability of a 100 year flood in the Hawkesbury Valley at the same time as a heat wave in, I don't know, Adelaide, at the same time as the tropical cyclone in West Australia? Not separated, but I mean, it was, this one was only separated by two weeks, right? But uh, so they can't give you a probability estimate of compound events. And because you can't, use probability in a quantitative sector, they can't do a cost-benefit analysis because they can't give you an expectation value. But the, um, so there was a second stream that was talking about how do we model that and how do we make decisions when we don't have, you know, when there's a lot of uncertainty. Third stream was knowledge brokering. So, uh, and it's, and by that, I think it's actually a horrible phrase, but it, it essentially means turning the data into intelligence, figuring out what is actually needed. 
So one of the things we did in the knowledge brokering stream was we had a series of, of uh, the data release. So we took all this nicely tailored climate information and we wrote guidance saying things like, here's the uncertainty, here's caveats, here's times you can't use it. And then we gave it to the sector and said, try this. And we got it completely wrong the first time, which is very good for us. Um, so for example, we're trying to teach them climate science. And they said, we're not, we don't want to learn climate science. We haven't got the time. We're not stupid. You know, we do complex modeling. We're highly quantitative, but, but this is only one risk that we're looking at. So tell us how we incorporate it. Just give us the recipe. Another thing we got wrong is just formats, you know. So here's, here's, so for example, the uh, electricity sector said, you've given me climate projections with five decimal places. It's like, is this a reflection of the, you know, the, the uncertainty? It's like, no, of course it's not. It, we just maintain all those decimal places because otherwise you end up with rounding errors by the time you've done, you know, millions of calculations. But it's like, hmm. no, I'm not going to tell you what it is at three o'clock in the afternoon on Friday, you know, October the 17th, 2053. I don't even know if that's a Friday. But, uh, you know, so uh, the, that, that whole stream, that whole pathway, I have to say, in our project was under-resourced because we're not used to, uh, the climate and weather services are not used to uh, that intersection or one of our scientists called the docking, which I really like. You think about like space modules docking. It's like, how do you make those things fit together? So we had three rounds of testing the, the data and the user guide. And I said, we got it really wrong the first time. And the, th the third time, which is where we are right now, is a much simpler interface, which says, you tell us which variable you want, you know, whether you care about extremes or means, which part of the country you care about, care about uh, what it's for, which says something about the concentration pathway. Is it a policy response? Is it a risk response? And then we'll spit out some data sets that you can use. You don't have to learn the climate science. <laughs> That actually sounds very amazing and very convenient now. And really hard work. <laughs> but um, so I wanted just to give you a flavor, you know, for, for what's needed to make that work. And, and those mm. are all really different skill sets. Yeah. It's, yeah. There's a lot of work from a lot of different people. And mm. it's not a lot of work from all the same people. You need kind of a diversity in your knowledge base to get everything to actually dock into the right way. Yeah, you do. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's great to hear. Something interesting that you mentioned is the extreme weather conditions. Even though they're kind of lower probability events, are you finding like different companies are now trying to approach to find out how likely they are to occur? Because I guess a couple yeah. of years ago when we had raging bushfires in Victoria, that kind of really impacted some developing solar farms. Yes, uh, and it sort of comes back to what I was saying right at the beginning about narrative. It's like people are most afraid of something they've just experienced. So right now, everyone's asking us about flood risk. Um, mm. Very topical. <laughs> yeah, they are. And one of the challenges in this whole docking between climate information and, and business needs is that uh, the climate information is just sometimes we just don't know. You know, as I said, it's a chaotic system. And I love the fact that this is, you know, we talk about our lives, my social life is chaotic or whatever, but this is a genuinely mathematically chaotic system. And so um, an example is that there's a lot of concern in the, in the electricity sector about severe convective winds, downdrafts. So these are, the thing, these are cells that occur on the edges of thunderstorms mostly. 
not tornadoes, uh, but now I don't know what the mechanism is because I'm not a, not a you know, meteorologist, but essentially what happens is that you get these massive, almost like a flood of air that drops down because of the differences in pressure. So 100 meters per second, and, and they literally flatten power lines, like pancake them. And they are the greatest weather risk to power lines, but they're very small events. They're of the order of a kilometer or two, really, really hard to model. And so uh, I have a feeling I'm straying off your original question, Brian, but I'll finish this. No, I think it's still interesting. <laughs> so what happens is that we've got scientists at the Bureau who are just outstanding scientists who have been uh, trying to model these events in a novel way by adding together a lot of weather indices using, using the global climate models, using knowledge of uh, fluid dynamics of thunderstorms and stuff like that. And they've come up with new maps, essentially, of where this severe convective wind risk is. And it's not particularly high resolution, but if you look at the Australian wind standards, divides Australia into five different sections, right? <laughs> so it's better than that. But because of the risk to the electricity sector, as soon as we produce those maps, they've come back and said, no, those are good. Can we have them higher resolution? It's like, no, you can't. You really, really can't. <laughs> So, yeah, it's just, a, you know, as I said, I think I've strayed off your question, but that's just an example of, of, you know, the education that needs to happen and also education in uncertainty. How do you use the electricity sector is pretty knowledgeable about things like probability envelopes, uh, you know, probability density functions is what they mostly use in stochastic modeling and using deterministic versus uh, probabilistic modeling. So, so they're pretty knowledgeable but uh, we still have to make sure that the information we provide actually matches what they need. And there are lots of industries like banking who are very quantitative, but in a different way. And so trying to match up what we can tell them with how they usually think, it's a pretty challenging. Just to kind of lead off and just have one last question for you today. So because uh, as your role in Project Portnoy, you've already described how different kind of disciplines are already interconnecting together to help build that one great solution and a very convenient and effective solution. What kind of role do you see younger scientists who are not directly linked to energy, like working in engineering or science, what role do you see them playing in helping to change our energy systems for the future and kind of all, not even so much the future, but even right now? Are you thinking specifically for with a climate change kind of lens, Brian, or just from yeah, a... Even a climate change kind of lens or even with the electricity networks or working together and putting mm. those two kind of fields together? So this is actually probably drawing off my experience of my this very small project that I mentioned looking at uh, neighbourhood batteries. You know, there's the, the, the change in the electricity system is happening really fast and the... the technology that's contributing is comes from all different fields so the system itself like AIM, uh, the australian electricity market operator models the whole system um, which is incredibly complex and as i said quite extensively uses things like machine learning to uh, they they can't actually model the entire system because they don't have a you know a sort of a twin they're trying to get there but they haven't got it yet you know, so some of that intelligence that comes out of systems thinking is also something that they need a great deal. But the system is going to be changed by engineers working. So, you know, wind farms cutting out at 45 centigrade is like, that's, that's we think it's to a large extent because they're built in Germany and it doesn't go over that very often. 
<laughs> you know, so engineering solutions to uh, Australian conditions. Uh, mm. We're a relative. We're a relatively small global market. It's a funny way to, to solve that. Is also needed. And and then you look at sort of uh, batteries and battery evolution and the physics and the chemistry that go into that. You know, that's that's also changing. There, um, someone described it the other day as a instead of a silver bullet, there's a silver shotgun, which I don't really like very much now. I come to think of it. You know, one of the I think uh, we come from a world where we consider that the solution is to upsize, have a bigger power plant, you know, have a bigger solar panel. And the world of energy in the future is to downsize. You know, it is to solve it at the local level. One of the, just to, just to link extreme and compound events and how they're changing as well is, is that is, is driving the businesses to look more at standalone power systems, microgrids, neighborhood batteries, and uh, some of those, the battery solutions, you know, the technology of batteries is super cool. You know, it comes from flow batteries to molten salt generation. And, and you know, and someone I, I was, we had, I was talking to someone who's a storage, energy storage expert. And they said, it depends on the time scale at which you want to store it. Batteries are really good for time scale of hour, minutes to hours. Well, actually, fractions of a second to hours. Pumped hydro is pretty good on the scale of like days to possibly weeks or months. But if you if you have a wind drought and cloud and uh, and during a you know dry spell, then it turns out that your best solution is just a shed full of wood, <laughs> you know, chips because you got because you can always it's really cheap to store is one thing that's really good about it, right? It's really cheap to store. It doesn't take very long to fire up. You can actually store a whole lot. Uh, and so I think, you know, actually the technologies, every kind of technology has a role to play in this. And when you come to sort of economics and behavior and the whole kind of uh, behavioral economics and nudge stuff, you're also trying to change people's behavior. So we have an electricity system which charges, which maybe I think 15% of users have a peak and off-peak tariff. Most people have a flat tariff. And for most students, if you're in student accommodation, it's included. That's a terrible way to change behavior. Uh, and it's also really important because our electricity system is built to a peak of peaks. And the best thing that we can do for sustainability and for efficiency and for cost is shave those peaks. So, you know, building in price signals, building in behavior signals, which says don't turn your oven on, don't turn your air conditioning on, you know, between six and eight in the evening, uh, charge your electric, you know, automate it. So people who have swimming pools, hot water pumps, you know, hot water systems, electric vehicles, automated. So those don't turn on. I think the, you know, the kind of behavioral side is also really interesting and really important. Anyway, sorry, I'm a bit of a, definitely an energy system enthusiast. And so, oh, and the other thing I will add as well, which I think is really interesting, is the sort of finance and economics side. So because of roughly what I was just saying about, you know, peak, the difference in value between, an, you know, a stream of electrons at two in the afternoon and a stream of electrons at seven in the evening. The electricity market pricing is the most volatile pricing of any market I have ever heard of. So, you know, we're talking negative pricing at two in the afternoon on a sunny day and say this time of year, you know, autumn, spring where parts energy generators are paying people storage people to take their power to a sort of early february five or six o'clock in the afternoon on a, you know at the end of a three or four day heat wave it's fourteen and a half thousand dollars a megawatt hour 
<laughs> oh, that's a lot of money. Yeah. So, you know, from an economic and finance point of view, and also game theory, it's like they all game, you know, this system like crazy. Like, how do I mm. shift? Although I have a, a contractual obligation to supply power all the time, if I happen to have a mechanical outage in the afternoon, but I'm available at six o'clock in the evening, it's like that makes a really big difference to revenue. Mm. I'm, obviously, I'm simplifying and probably maligning some people, but... But, you know, as I said, it's, I think that, that if I come back to the kind of people who are in your energy club, scientists and people who are quantitative, you know, who have an understanding of the fact that, uh, you know, we signed a power purchase agreement for renewable energy in rural Victoria to supply the city of Melbourne and explaining to the city of Melbourne councillors that, no, we don't get those electrons, <laughs> you know. You're not painting them green and then they're suddenly letting only the green ones in the door. You know, so science literacy, even if you don't end up working as a scientist, is tremendously valuable. Being credible in this space, you know, being mm. credible about understanding power flows, having at least a rough idea, you know, of, of um, and being comfortable with, you know, being numerate and comfortable with quantities is just, is, is a tremendously valuable resource in this area. Oh, thanks. I think that's some very inspiring and some interesting points that um, I think the listeners will be able to take away from. But yeah, I think that's all the time we have for today. Thank you very much for joining us and giving some insight into this area, your previous work experiences, and kind of what you're doing right now. It was really interesting to hear. I, mean, I learned a lot. And thank you for taking the time to share with everyone at the Monash Energy Club today. You're very welcome, Brian. Um, you know, I enjoy talking about this. I find it interesting. Um, if any of your club members have questions, uh, you know, I'd be happy to follow up.